Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, Achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And we're using German today for a very, very good reason, aren't we, James? Yes, we are. Uh, we've got a <laughs> German guest. You know, and I think we um, I think we can... Uh, 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 a criticism that can be laid at our door is that we're possibly a teeny bit Brit-centric. Um, <laughs> I think it's a good thing. Steady on, old chap. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a very, very, very good thing to get, get the view of the other side of the hill, particularly yeah. from from uh, a number of, of German historians and academics who are doing really incredible work in furthering our understanding of um, the Weltkrieg. And yeah. today we have Jens Weiner, who is the creator of the Bundeswehr uh, Military History Museum in Dresden. Uh, which I visited in the past, and it is a really, really fantastically good museum. It's got this brilliant approach. It's it's a it's a wonderful building, and inside it's all kind of really clean. And it's one of those museums where you've got space to breathe. You know, you're yep. not bombarded with lots of screens and press this and get a smiley face, and you know, press this and get someone's audio on something. It's 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 almost artifacts of history as art in a way and right. and, and it's much more profound and uh, just before we came on we were talking um about one particular exhibit which is an exploding hand grenade yes you sent me a photograph of that um and it, it's incredibly striking because it does look it's it's like an abstract like an impressionist picture of of a thing yes so obviously although obviously what it is is an, an impression of a momentary concrete reality which is a, a, a grenade exploding and firing red hot metal everywhere i mean it, it it's incredibly striking as a, as an image it absolutely is and what's incredible about it is is you just look at just how many bits of very very jagged red hot metal that represents yeah. and as jens yeah. was just pointing out a minute ago weren't you jens mm-hmm. that's not even all of it yeah um actually it's a artillery shell 8.8 centimeter from czech republic and the most splinters in a grenade are very small. You can't see them with your eyes. And so we are not able to exhibit them, but they are most deadly because they are very fast and they hurt the body very bad. 
Yes, and quite often, you know, there are occasions where someone would be found and they said, you know, I, I found Peter sort of lying by a hedge and his body seemed completely unmarked. And that's because he's got a an absolutely minute splinter that's just pierced his part mm-hmm. or the back of his neck or head or something yeah. it could be yeah. could be anything and that that's what's done for him um but it's a very very powerful image and there's you've also got a whole series of suspended bombs kind of falling from from strings mm-hmm. as well which I, I remember um and i think you were responsible for that so um so thank you for your work on that yeah um i mean i was one of the curators of the permanent exhibition of the museum And uh, we have a second way, or let's say a two-way approach in this exhibition. One is the classical chronological part, where also the grenade can be found, you mentioned earlier. And on the other side, we have a cultural topical approach, like military and technology, uh, uh, protection and destruction, military and fashion, (laughs) military and music, military and language. And uh, so this is a two-way approach in our museum. So essentially how the military reflects society sociologically, how it's placed and its action and effect on other parts of society and culture. Yeah, we see military and all the stuff that belongs to military technology, uniforms, orders, behavior as a part of human culture in a sense. Well, I've got to say, I've, I've always been a little bit obsessed about how different uniforms were in the Second World War. So, uh, you know, a, a, a British uniform at the start of the war, it, it's very pragmatic. It's just functional. There's no amazing design to it. Shape. Shape. <coughs> it's very shape. cheap. Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> um, uh, and, and to a certain extent, exactly the same with the Americans. The Americans is reflective of the fact that this is a, a rapidly growing civilian army. The main jacket that your infantrymen would have been wearing at the start of the war is based on a pre-war civilian wind cheater. Uh, and yet the Germans, of course, it's certainly in the Blitzkrieg years. It's it's jack boots. It's very well tailored, and it and it reflects a different, totally different society, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you can't explain the uniforms. I would say without the symbolism. I am not an expert on uniforms. We have a we have a researcher and academic for this in our museum. But uh, when it comes to uniforms, you have to keep in mind there is a really important uh, uh, symbolism behind this. And let me explain that in one example. We remember the SS mostly with the black uniforms. yeah. But during the war, most soldiers of the SS officers and so on wanted to have a field gray uniform like the Wehrmacht because the soldier had a higher status than the SS man in the black uniform. Yeah, so this means, so that's the reason why you find, why you, if you look at, um, let's say, SS troops that uh, did some murder in the Holocaust, uh, they mostly have field gray um, uh, uniforms. Yeah? They wanted to have it, and even the Gestapo guys wanted to have a field gray uniforms because for them it was much cooler to say it in a modern way. Yeah. Well, because, because field gray, the army is more prestigious than a political. Yeah. Gosh, how Comes interesting! From the World War One and the, the society yeah. before World War One, yeah, the, the Kaiserreich, as we say in Germany, and uh, there the soldier had a high status, and of course this was true also for the nation and socialism. Amazing! Mm-hmm. Well, that heavens, I did not know that. I'd have, I'd have thought, you know, my immediate assumption would be that would be the other way mm-hmm. round, given, given the, the the prevalence of national socialism at the time. Gosh, how how interesting! Now, um. Yes, uh, can I? We we often ask our guests uh, uh, this this question when we have guests on, just to sort of to get to, to get to know them. How how did you end up um, specialising in this? How did you end up interested in this? How did you end up being interested in the Second World War? Because in the UK, when I was a boy in the seventies and the eighties, it was it was a massive part of British culture. This the, the a kind of. Uh, well, no, a celebration of the Second World War and of British victory and all that sort of thing. So, how do you how do you come to it as a German? How have you ended up doing this mm, job? Um, I can't. I'm only able to guess. I would say I'm grown up in Eastern Germany, and their military and especially the East German Army. My father was an officer in the East German Army, and I had a lot of propaganda about the Red Army and how brave they fought in World War Two and and how good they were and so on and how they liberated uh, Europe, and um, so I was generally interested in military history, also other ages of war, and when I was uh, let's say around ten, 
my father decided to write an academic thesis about the Soviet remembrance literature, yeah, meaning um, officers of the Red Army yeah. uh, that were published in German. They were translated from the Russian books to the German books, to German language. But then he canceled this project and chose another one that was not so much political and propagandistic and so on. And so he dissolved his books into my room because we had not much space. <laughs> <laughs> and so I read, let's say, 80 memoirs of Russian officers and soldiers from World War II, mostly. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> fight, uh, fighter airplane pilots, uh, which is also what I'm doing a little bit now about my PhD th thesis, but also Shukov and Konyev and all the guys. Of course, this is the propaganda literature. Those are the censored um, books. Yeah, um, And yeah. when I was 11, suddenly everything I read was not true <laughs> because the wall <laughs> came down. And now we had the Western view of World War II. <laughs> yeah. And so the yeah. Soviet uh, fighter pilots, for example, they were no brave professional heroes. They were just cannon fodder for the German aces like Erich Hartmann and so on. And this brought me into some questions. How is this possible? How is it possible that two sides have a very different story of World War II and what happened? Yeah. I mean, you have to keep in mind this was 1990 yeah. when most archives especially in Russia were still closed I mean it's even today not that simple to get in an archive I think in Russia but uh, many things were not known whether to the east neighbor to the west uh, western guys western historians uh, so I think those are some inputs uh, from my personal story goodness me yeah God, I mean, you, you couldn't get a further, a more different approach yeah. to the subject than, than the one of, of Alan, Alan Mine. And I think, you know, frankly, yours is a much better way of getting into it than, than watching war movies and reading comic books. But, but well, there's an Possibly. argument for it anyway. Well, that, that, I mean, that, that immediately raises so many questions, Jens. I mean, because after all, there you are. With this East German, that you have an East German perspective, mm. I think is a thing that maybe people in, in the UK don't consider when they think of how Germany dealt with the war after the war. Mm. I think our experience and our focus has been on how people in the West would cope mm -hmm. with it. And after all, that you would then have to go through this sort of cognitive shift from the Soviet Union and the Red Army were excellent and heroic to then the, the Western version of it as well, where actually they were terrible and they're, you know, they're, they're incompetent. Has that led you to... Reappraise that reappraisal, though. Do you now think that the Red Army don't fit the second stereotype as well as the first one that you grew up on? Yeah, absolutely, that's true. So, um, I mean, I mean, the the socialist system we had in the GDR and the Soviet Union was, of course, authoritarian, very propagandistic, so a very straight way to tell the people the so-called truth. Yeah? So, I mean, the Western uh, research and um, is, of course, in a more liberated society, in a more, uh, of course, it's a democratic system. So I think they never were this straight and this stereotype as, the, as, 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 as we learned it in the GDR. But it had at least, and maybe it has today, some weaknesses, I would say. Let's say it this way, yeah? Yeah, well, because a lot of it, because I mean, one of the one of the emphases that has existed in British and American historiography about Germany's performance in the war is how the Germans are better at everything. They have better equipment. Their army, their army fights better tactically. Mm. You know that the, the, they're better motivated and all this sort mm. of thing. And and the, and part of the problem, and that and that's become and that's a, a product of the Cold War as well, because after all there was this business of having to get West Germany mm -hmm. on side mm -hmm. um, and to be nice to it <laughs> and to um, uh, overlook some of the things that happened in the Second World War to, to, to make an ally of of, uh, of Western Germany. But it, but it's also and, because people in West Germany and during the Cold War are the only people who've actually fought the Red Army. 
Yes, well, that and that's mm-hmm. all part. Yes, that's all part of it. But 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 that too has led to a problem of well, it, you end up not being able to explain some of what happened if the Germans are so brilliant, this, that, and the other. Well, why? How come? You know, as as, as one of our contributors put it very bluntly, how come they lost? Mm-hmm. So if the Red Army is so terrible, how come they won? You have to you have to then do mm-hmm. that as 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 well. Don't exactly. You? Exactly. Um, yeah, that's that's one question. Of course, you have the explanations like. Oh, they had the higher numbers, which is, of course, true. Yeah, and which is, of course, a fact that is not really strong in a, in a Soviet propaganda literature. Yeah, so, so you see how propaganda yeah. works. Yeah, of course, if you, if you read uh, especially memoirs or books with, with more novel style or so, you, you see also that the Soviets always do like they were outnumbered. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah. of course, this is a, uh, this is a fact. Yeah. But um, of course, you have some objective uh, explanations, but that's not all. Of course, it has also something to do with quality in some way, quality of um, operational warfare, quality of technology, quality of armament, quality of um, decisions also. Yeah. And quality of morale Qual- as well. Quality of, of morale, yeah, yeah, very important, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here we are talking about the East because we don't, we don't talk about the, the Eastern Front enough. And I think... Um, uh, if there's one, if there's one battle for for people first acquainting themselves with with the Eastern Front that sort of encapsulates it, and we talk about this very often about decisive battles in the Second World War and moments where the where the German regime sh- surely should have looked and thought, hang on a minute, we've lost, and and I think Stalingrad uh, that is the battle that probably is the one is the headline battle of the Eastern Front for people from the West certainly, even though they don't know about Bagratin, they don't mm. know about Mm. They, they don't Case blue really know what happened at Kursk. Yes, what's happening at Sebastopol? Do they? I mean, you know, uh, no, it's just no, not... and and so on. But Stalingrad is a, is 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 a good battle to sort of get to grips with the with the problems the Germans are having and the successes that the Soviets are capable of, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I think Stalingrad is more problematic because it's known for a very well reason, and this is again propaganda because. Um, I was astonished when I curated the exhibition how much uh, media coverage was about the battle, even before the first German troops entered the city. I had an internship, um, a student, and I gave him uh, the order, let's say it like this, uh, to research German newspapers from this time about the word Stalingrad, when is it mentioned? And he discovered that it was mentioned one month before in three German newspapers. We choose three, one regional from Dresden, where our museum is located. One was the Völkische Beobachter, so the central national socialist yep. newspaper. Yeah, And a, a third one, I think, from Western Germany. I can't remember the name. And it was really astonishing how much media coverage was there from German perspective. And so I looked on the Allied side and I nearly found, that, let's not say the same, but similar aspects. Yeah? So the Soviet media coverage about this battle was quite huge. And of course, the media coverage, I would say, in the US and also in uh, Great Britain or the UK was also quite huge. And the second reason is this battle was very long, so over months. Yeah. So if you say yeah. they entered, the, the, the first reports were one month before they entered the city. Uh, this is, uh, let's say, in August 1942, and the battle ended in February. So this is really a long time to have media coverage about one battle. Let's say Kursk. If you choose the German definition of Zitadelle, it's only one or two weeks. Uh, yeah. So, so to give some implications why we know this battle so well, it's not the only reason, of course. Of course, it was also an important battle, maybe not the deciding, decisive one or the turning point or how, whatever you want to call it. You can discuss these topics or these facts, but um, uh, of course, the media coverage was very high. Huh. And do you think, I mean, I mean, huh. the whole point of Case Blue was to get into the Crimea, get down to Baku and get to the oil fields. And they get sort of, sidetracked by Stalingrad. Stalingrad is is not the main aim of the summer offensive Mm -hmm. of 1942. Absolutely right. The main aim is to get oil, you know, this this much-needed resource of which the Germans are so short. You know, their only oil supply comes from Romania. Yeah. So to get to the oil fields is, 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 is... 
you know, that's El Dorado. It's the Holy Grail, isn't it? That's what they're trying to do. I mean, you can argue about what they would have actually done if they'd ever got to the oil fields without the Soviets kind of burning them first anyway, because they didn't really have the means of transporting it. But that's another matter. But they get siphoned off to Stalingrad. Mm. It's never the main point of Case Blue. Do you think, how much is it just because it's called Stalingrad? Not very much, to be honest. Not at not, all? That's not, not, yeah, <laughs> a little bit, maybe Excellent. a little bit, because this is media coverage and the media is, of course, very interested in constructing such uh, duels, Hitler, Stalin, Stalingrad, whatever. But um, if you look at the original blue, blue uh, case blue, Fall Blau, as we say in German, uh, you see they only wanted to... Only, I say only in uh, Marx, um, uh, to destroy the city, yeah, but not to conquer it. They they planned to destroy the city, and as you said, uh, I I would totally agree. It was about the oil fields, about the oil wells of uh, Baku and the Caucasus. And uh, during the battle, they had a let's say a wrong estimation of Soviet forces. They thought the Red Army was much more weaker than anticipated. And so they decided to conquer the city and, and at the same time to conquer the Caucasus. And this was, I would say, in the, let's say from our perspective today, a failure, a, a fail. But you would call that mission creep in mo modern parlance, wouldn't you? You would say that that is, you know, your main mm. aim is this and they're veering off from their main aim. Suddenly, yeah. mid mid operation, they're changing their plan. Mm, yeah, I mean, in the end, they changed it only a little bit. They they changed it from reach the city and destroy the city first, and then go into the Caucasus to conquer the city. At the same time, we go into the Caucasus, so they split the forces. So, I mean, this is a modification, and um, uh, I I wouldn't say it was the complete reason for the fail of Case Blue. Of course, this was the Soviet resistance in any way, no matter if it was in the Caucasus or in Stalingrad. But um, but of course, it made it. Uh, uh, yeah, as you say, mission creep also, or something like this. But but one of the great strengths of the of the German and before them the Prussian forces in, in going all the way back to the 18th century is this idea of the Schwerpunkt, this this kind of concentration of of force mm -hmm. in a kind of sort of mm -hmm. rapid movement. Mm -hmm. Bam, you go straight in by splitting your forces. You you know you know you'd have thought by the summer of 1942 the German High Command would have worked out that the Soviet Union is a very different place to the Low Countries and to France, just in terms of scale. I mean, it, it's huge. So what on earth are they thinking, suddenly splitting their forces? You know, if their main goal is to go and get the oil fields of the Caucasus, what are they doing having this kind of quite major um, diversion towards Stalingrad? Yeah, but I think... I, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on the thinking of the German high command of this time, but those things I have read in documents and books and so on is that they were really quite desperate at this time already. Yeah. So, and what's interesting, I would say, is they changed their expectations about the war itself. I would say monthly. Let's say in one month yeah. they said they said, um, "Oh, I am thinking um, uh, we will win this war in some weeks," and in, on the other next month they say. This will be a long war, 30 years or so. We will, f we will fight this year war because the enemy is very hot and so on. So they had not really a good estimation of the, situa of the situation. You could say they have a bad situational awareness. Where are we? How strong are we? How strong is our enemy? And so on. So they, the estimation is, is not right. And mostly... It's an underestimation of the enemy. Yeah, this is something which led to the whole case Barbarossa, the whole campaign in the Soviet Union, an underestimation of the enemy. Which actually, when you think about it, is something that the Germans are guilty of throughout the war. I mean, you know, I hate to bring it back to Britain, but I mean, they underestimate Britain in 1940. Yeah, you know, they 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 they're constantly underestimating yeah. even the USA and certainly the the Soviet Union. I mean. You know, the, the the thinking in the spring of 1941 is, well, we've just conquered France and we've, you know, run amok over half of Europe. Soviet Union, I mean, how hard can it be? 
uh, you know, failing to appreciate the fact that the, the sheer scale of the Soviet Union is one of the huge obstacles that they've got to overcome. I think I think the underestimation comes from two parts. One is uh, the racist the racism of the National yeah. Socialist uh, leadership, of course. So they were not thinking uh, really that the Russians were able to produce so much tanks, so much modern tanks, so much modern airplanes and so on. This is one thing. And the other thing, they didn't recognize how much the Soviet Union changed in the 20s and 30s. Uh, this is also something that happened uh, a little bit to the Western allies, I would say. They also had not so much high hope on the Soviet resistance, uh, especially in 1941, but also in 1942 or so. Uh, they, because they had in the pictures they had in mind where uh, this is an agriculture country, as we know from the empire, yeah, from the Russian empire. And Of course, uh, under the rulership of Stalin, which was a very brutal rulership, of course, with uh, lots of murders and, and so on, millions of victims, was also an industrialization. So many factories were built. And uh, and uh, they, they didn't recognize this uh, correctly, I would say. That's very interesting. That's a thought I've never actually considered. Mm -hmm. that, that one of the reasons why the Western allies are so panicked about what's going on in the Soviet Union is because they also, like the Germans, have underestimated the strength of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've just never thought of that. I, I think Richard Ory is noting this out several times, uh, that the Western allies in 1941, in June 1941, when the campaign was started by the Germans, uh, they had not high hopes on the Soviet Union. And even... Up to the Battle of Stalingrad, let's say um, end of '42 or so, it was not a very high appreciation of the Soviet resistance capabilities. But that that that's a product, isn't it, of no one really knowing whether the Soviets are ever telling the truth, isn't it? it, it, it uh, partly from from the interwar years that that there's been so much. But first of all, Bolshevism is regarded as a, an aberration, as dangerous, as uh, chaotic, rather than a thing that might be able to organize. Um, an industrial revolution, which is what happens in those 20 years, as you're saying. Mm -hmm. And also, and, if you want uh, any proof of that, you've only got to look at Finland, haven't you? Well, yes. Yeah, yeah. But but it's not just that, isn't it? it, it it's that, it's that you know, the, the, the people who have been to the Soviet Union from the, the British press tend to be people who, who want to see the bright side, who want to see the good stuff in the Soviet Union, fellow travellers. And so th there's not been a serious assessment in British opinion certainly in British opinion, of what the Soviets are capable of at all, for, for, in the same way that there hasn't been in Germany either. I mean, you, you know, but after all, fashionable British society and British politics doesn't like Bolshevism at all, doesn't like the Soviet Union at all, and is scared of it rather than assessing it, taking it seriously, which is why, after all, you have Brit people in British society prepared to give the Nazis a pass um, until, until very late, very late in the day. It, it, that's right, isn't it, James? Yeah, absolutely, because because their cousins have all been murdered by you know by, yeah, yeah, by yeah, the yeah, communists yeah, yeah. in nineteen seventeen and eighteen. Uh, yeah, 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 and so on. Yeah, we have to take a short break here. Fascinating as it is. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talking to Jens Weiner about Stalingrad. When the Germans commit themselves to the battle in Stalingrad, is there ever a time during that battle where, they, where, where there, there's a feeling that they've bitten off more than they can chew, that this is going to go horribly wrong? At what point do they realise that this, is, this battle isn't playing out the way they expected? Though, 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 of course, as you've pointed out, Jens, they've changed their minds about what, what they're trying to achieve. So how it can achieve what they set out to do is quite difficult to quantify because they don't know what they're trying to achieve. They've, they've changed their minds. When do they realize it's going wrong? I'm not sure, but I would say when the encirclement took place. <laughs> yeah, well, it's fairly obvious then, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> and, and even then, I would say they had not a really good uh, appreciation of the situation in all, at all. Yeah, And um, so I would say it's very, very late uh, when they come to a realistic picture of the situation. I mean, that's amazing. And do you, do you think, Jens, that... that One of the reasons they they can't get out of Stalingrad and can't just sort of pull back is because in the news they have made such a fuss of it. And so therefore to kind of to to retreat is too big a humiliation. You know, you've started, mm. you've made this big fuss about Stalingrad. You, it's in the papers. Everyone's, you know, it's on Divokenschau, etc., etc. 
are you then kind of to use a phrase kind of hoist by your own petard you know in so much that you you've 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 so publicly committed it's too humiliating to back out i mean obviously you know whole hitlerian view of generalship is to never surrender never give in give an inch but but somehow it's more so at stalingrad do you agree with that or is is, is that off the mark uh i would approve it but uh i would say it's not the whole picture of the story it's one important part uh but i would say they also had even before the encirclement quite heavy problems with their logistics um I wrote an article about this, uh, which is also available in English, by the way. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, and the point is, when they moved into Stalingrad in September of 42, they fought a battle up to uh, mid of November of 42. So let's say uh, two months where street battles in Stalingrad. And during this time... During this time, the logistics were very bad. They had really problems to supply the troops in Stalingrad and of the whole 6th Army already. So the rations, the food of the soldiers, had to be cut by half several days before the encirclement took place already. So the German soldiers already had not enough food to eat already before the encirclement took place. And they, of course, they had also a lot of other uh, logistical problems, especially in fuel, tank ammunition, and so on. So, And this is also a reason why it was not so easy to retreat from Stalingrad or to say, oh, we should retreat or we should stop or whatever. Yeah. But how has that come about? I mean, yeah, how, why? Is that, why? how has that not been anticipated? Why, yeah, why I, do the German, why, German Germans yeah, not... Be, predict that in this vast expanse of the Soviet Union they're going to have supply issues you know where the railway lines have to be changed because they're a different gauge where they haven't got enough fuel I mean is it because yes but that was the whole point of case blue so we we're going to have the oil so we don't need to worry about it now because in a couple of months we'll have it I mean is is, is that the the reason I mean because it doesn't seem to me that you need to be a rocket scientist to realize that any operations in the Soviet Union are going to be very challenging in terms of logistics. Because they think all the time the Russians are quite desperate too, even more than they are for themselves. Because the defensive action of the Russians in Stalingrad, which is only about 10% of the city near the river, Volga, of course it looks desperate even today. Yeah? If, you, if you see how the Soviets throw their divisions into it and they were... Uh, um, and they had very high losses. I think the 13th Guard Division is the most famous example, yeah, which was, I think, th there are stories they were destructed within one day. So a whole division was in a meat grinder and was uh, 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 destructed in one day. And of course, this looks desperate, but um, and maybe it was for the Russians to hold the last part of Stalingrad, the 10%. It's only about the industrial quarter of Stalingrad. So 90% of the city are in German hands. So, of, of course, you can't get the impression. And the Germans had not really a good picture of the whole strength of the Soviet Union. Yeah, About, let's say... Uh, the troops that were concentrated to do the encirclement operations, they didn't notice this or very late, only several days before there were the first messages about this from the German intelligence, as far as I remember at least. And of course, the Soviets had still a very strong concentration of troops around Moscow and uh, maybe even stronger than around Stalingrad. So maybe you can say it's not even the main front for the Red Army at this time. Huh. And, uh, and 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 I think most German officers didn't notice that fact. And so they thought the Soviet Union was at the point of a defeat, next to the point of a defeat. But this was completely wrong. And, and there it is the underestimation. Yeah. And of course, it has something to do with one point of a very good Soviet camouflage, yeah, of very good um, uh, top secrecy in Soviet uh, general stuff and so on to hide the troops to play down the troops and so on so that so the german assessment either goes from we're going to we're going to it's a house of cards it'll collapse any second we're going to kick the door in and the soviets will collapse 
It yeah. goes from yeah. it fluctuates from mm-hmm. that to oh dear, mm-hmm. they're, they're, uh, we're really they're fighting much harder than we thought. This war's going to go on forever. Yeah, and the and funny then, thing is, this happened forty-one already too. Yeah, yes, 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 because it does definitely mm. happens in forty-one, doesn't mm. it? Is that they get off to a good start and then and then re- think, hang on a minute, this is this is taking a lot longer than we thought it would, and they and, and it keeps flip, it flip flops, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it it it, um, it, fi- it flip flops, and and of course they have also huge military successes on the operational level, also in forty-two. And and you see also the Soviets are at some points very desperate. Um, take for instance Stalin's famous order, Ni Shaku Nazat, No Step Back, where, where he ordered in, in summer 42 not to retreat and and those who retreat have to be shot shot yeah, by by NKVD also. So the so the rates of shootings uh, of own soldiers in the Red Army are rising, not that high as it is mostly said, but they were rising, of course. So you see, even the Soviets have, of course, their desperate times. And of course, the Germans noticed that. And so this makes it, I think, a little bit quite harder for the Germans to estimate the situation correctly, especially when they have, let's say, something like no strategic intelligence. So they have not a real impression of the whole strength of the Red Army and the Soviet Union. I mean, strategic intelligence is really, really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, again, to go back to 1940, they, they have a complete misappreciation of the strength of the RAF. British Isles, how you know yeah. the British yeah. Armed Services, you know the Armed Forces, how it works. They have no concept of of a that the, the, there's a air defence plan around Britain. You know, it's just just it just isn't there. And and again, it just isn't there in 1941, and it isn't in 1942 either. And mm-hmm. it, and it's incredible, really, that 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 in a way the German Armed Forces get as far as they do when their strategic intelligence is so woeful. I mean, it, it, it is really bad. And it's incredible how good Nazi Germany is at, at intelligence on itself. You know, Goering famously has his own te- intelligence service, which is entirely his. It's private. It's separate from the state. And, and you know, the main reason for that is is not to... Um, keep tabs on the Soviet Union or on Britain or the United States is to keep tabs on other Nazis so that he can always be kind of one up. I mean, it's incredible. And yet the strategic intelligence is really poor. And boy, does that get them in hot water. But I wonder how much of that is, is, you know, how much of the misappreciation is also tied into this figure of the Fuhrer at the top and that, that... what he says goes and and you know he has to be right about absolutely everything and he's surrounded by sycophants and what he decides is is the law and and no one's going to disagree with hitler so you know i wonder how much his own misappreciation comes into it yeah good question next question <laughs> can't really <laughs> now uh, can't really say how much hitler of course hitler is responsible for the military disasters of the wehrmacht at this time yeah so 42 stalingrad is also on his uh, list of um, uh, failures but um how much he really i mean i mean i would i would say most german generals hadn't uh, the will to uh, uh, to give resistance to Hitler in a military way because they had the same appreciations, the same guessings, the same pictures in their mind about the Soviet Union. And as I said, even the Western allies had some impressions that were similar about the weakness of the Soviet Union. And so, um, I don't know, I, th- I think this is, uh, this is uh, so Hitler is for sure very radical and a racist guy. And so, of course, he has, a, let's say, a deterministic uh, underestimation of the Russians because of his racism. But uh, in, in some ways, it also fits in the general approach to the Soviet Union uh, you know, of the German general stuff and so on. Yeah, well, they're, they're, I mean, the German general staff know there's been a purge of the officer class in the Soviet Union as well, don't they? So they're looking, they're, they're looking at it like that too, aren't they? That this army isn't professional. How could it be? Uh, 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 and that they're factoring that in as much as anything else. And I'm sure that the first few weeks of Barbarossa, that, that people still keep thinking, well, we can do that again. 
because the, the victories in those, those fir- the first few weeks of 1941 of the campaign in 1941 are spectacular. So they must be thinking, we just need to get into our groove and do that again and the Soviets will will tumble. I mean, this is also a thing that the the, the British right from the start of the war think at some point the, the German Germany will fall in on itself and all it takes is an event to make that happen, to, to make it, you know, they think, they certainly think that before May 1940, the British and the French think, well, it's only, you know, all we've got to do is blockade Germany and Germany will fall in itself and everyone's misappraising everyone else um, uh, throughout the war, actually. Because after all, I mean, you, you look at the, the, the defeat of Germany at Stalingrad, although, as, as you're saying, it's more, more to it than meets the eye. You might expect, for instance, the generals to turn to Hitler and say, right, we've really lost badly here. It's time for you to go. But they don't do that. Where does the locus for the blame of the defeat in Stalingrad then move to after the end of the battle? Does, does, does von Paulus take all the blame or does it move... Where does it move in the German high command? Who ends up taking the, the rap? Mm, yeah, it depends from the time we were talking about. Of course, in the Third Reich itself, there was no blame because the Germans always do everything right because they are the, the superior race, so they can't be of all like this, <laughs> let's say it so. But uh, uh, after the war, I would say it's mostly uh, uh, Göring because of the air bridge, airlift bridge. Yeah, that was uh, that was not sufficient. Uh, it was also it's often Paulus because he is the head of the sixth army. Of course, uh, it's of course Hitler because he lost the war and he is responsible and he is deaf, so he can't defend himself. Same for Göring. Uh, Paulus was a little bit um, odd, at least in the Western views, because he changed sides and lived in Eastern Germany after the war here in Dresden. And uh, so so he was seen as a Soviet puppet, which is in some ways maybe true, in some ways not. And um, so you see those were the guilties of the Battle of Stalingrad right. uh, uh, in, in some ways. So at the time, it, is it sort of treated... Because the... the because if the if the Third Reich can't admit that it ever got anything wrong and made a mistake, how do they? How do you then present to the public that? Because you talked about the media before, mm-hmm. right, right at the start of this. You said, well, you know, look at the media. This this battle's going to become a headline battle because it's being written about even before it's happened. Um, how do the how do the media then serve up the defeat at Stalingrad mm-hmm. to the German public? Actually, maybe this is the greatest success of Goebbels, of the German Minister of Propaganda, because he made a propaganda that is later called uh, Kraft durch Furcht, means power by, hmm, what's, the German, what's the English word for this? So the, the people live in, in, in angst yeah, for, yep. the, for the Soviet Bolsheviks. Yeah? So, and he... Uh, in German, there is this famous organization, Kraft durch Freude, means uh, power through uh, happiness. Uh, and, and this is changed into Kraft durch Furcht, means, oh, this, the Bolsheviks are coming and they will devastate our territory if they come into Germany. And so we have to defend and Stalingrad is a fanal, a sign uh, to, to resist against the Bolsheviks. And um, there is a famous speech in the Sportpalast in Berlin yeah, called Wollt ihr den totalen Krieg? Do you want the total war? And all the people are crying, uh, uh, yelling, uh, yeah, yeah, we want to. It's Wochenschau, I think. It should be quite famous. And, yes. and this, is a, this is a quite a propaganda success for Goebbels. So they, that's the way they, they sold it to the people. And of course, there was a speech of Göring um, at the end of the Battle of Stalingrad at 30th January 43. Um, and, and they told the people a line, every German soldier, the soldier that fought in Stalingrad is dead because he fought to the end. Yeah, until there is uh, until he was killed by the Red Army, and of course this was not true because uh, roughly one hundred thousand uh, were marching into Soviet captivity. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, it it it, it is very interesting that that because um, we we we've talked about the sports sport palace speech. It keeps it keeps coming up. Well, it's mm. it's such a marker, isn't it? Because it's because yeah. because you can argue that militarily. Germany had already shot its bolt much, much earlier than February 1943. Mm-hmm. But psychologically, in terms of 
this there is this terrible realization in the in the in society in germany that oh my god you know we are up the proverbial creek without a paddle and and, and you know you reap what you sow mm. and, and everyone knows the essence of what has gone on i mean we year. don't we don't we don't have good um documents like polls also uh, about the german public opinion at this times but uh, the scientific research the academic research tells us that uh, that the um, um, picture of hitler was already declining since the end of the battle of moscow in 41 yeah because this was also a, quite a disaster of the germans in in the winter 41 42 of course stalingrad was another defeat but i wouldn't say it was at least for the germans that psychological turning point uh, never the One reason I told already was the Goebbels propaganda. The other reasons was that it was quite a simplistic argumentation to say, oh, of course, the Russians are fighting good in winter, but we, the Germans, are well in summer. <laughs> and, and so you can really observe, I would, I would make that point, point strong, that the morale in Germany was more rapidly declining after the last battle of Kursk in summer 43, because this was a summer battle and the Germans lost it too. Uh, at least this is something some academic researchers uh, are saying, and I would support this thesis. That's fascinating. So, so of course, the Russians are good at fighting during the winter. They know the winter, they live with it. We're on a path to the ultimate victory. There are going to be setbacks um, and come the summer, um, we're, we're, that's what we're good at. And then, and so Kursk then represents the the pricking that myth. And you've Hamburg that summer as well. So yeah, you have of, Ham you have Hamburg, you have Kursk, you have Sicily, you have some some air battles like Bloeschti or so. So this summer is really disastrous for the German. You both defeated um, in May. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, Africa has lost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, this is just fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Thank yeah. you. So, so Jens, I know you're still, you're still finishing off your PhD about the Luftwaffe, but mm. um, you know, once that's completed, it would be fantastic to get you back on to talk about the Luftwaffe, mm -hmm. about which um, yeah, I think course. it's fair to say I'm reasonably obsessed. Yeah, um, and talk some more. Yeah, of course we should do. I, I know your books. I know a lot of British books about the Battle of Britain. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to that then. <laughs> um, I would also urge after the, uh, when is it, 27th, 16th of May or whenever it is, we're allowed to go abroad again. Uh, I would urge, well, whenever whenever we can go abroad or whenever anyone's in anywhere near Dresden, I would fully recommend visiting your museum, which is, is mm -hmm. really, really fantastic really is, is a wonderful and uh, we have also a showcase about the battle of britain of course <laughs> yeah i mean every nation has its battles yeah. that's that's what it likes <laughs> when i when i started the phd i made a research in the, the british national library about the topic battle of britain it was very interesting <laughs> uh, how much how much books uh, there was and uh, for the germans for instance it's it's really stalingrad uh, a colleague of mine who is also an expert on the battle of stalingrad told me and the russians uh, because he speaks russian fluently i'm not so well there uh, he said stalingrad is for the germans like the Pavlovsche dog, you know, the Pavlov dog. I don't know how you call it in yeah, English. Yeah, yeah. So they always react if they hear Stalingrad. It's one of the battles that fascinated uh, Stalingrad. And you can see it because Stalingrad is still the most visited uh, exhibition in our museum up to today. Uh, we had a huge uh, visitorship for Stalingrad. So this is, let's say, a very important battle for the German history, at least in the minds of the people. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, but the, and, and as you well know, the Battle of Britain is too. But equally, the Battle of Britain is is probably one of the most mythologized episodes in in British history as well. Um, even though there is so much, you, you know, you, you, it's understandable that you might mythologize Alfred the Great or the uh, Norman invasion of 1066 because it was a long time ago. But but 1940 was a pinprick in time ago, um, and there's 
huge amounts of material on it and archival material on it, and yet it still persists with this narrative myth, which is just, frankly, nonsense, most of it. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting. And a point about the Battle of Stalingrad is also it's uh, some way a Europe battle, at least the Eastern Europe battle, yeah, with the Romanians and the Hungarians and the Italians. And um, I had really a hard try to find uh, exhibits from those armies who fought at Stalingrad, yeah, because at least 10 years ago, it was not that well researched when it comes to the Romanians. And I would say also the, the, the Russian um, history about this is not very well. So the Russians are mostly concentrating, of course, on the Germans and the Wehrmacht and so on. But I mean, you had two Romanian armies that were nearly completely destructed during the battle. And uh, they had a role, like the Italians or the Hungarians. Those were also very hard battles for those nations in their history, yeah? especially if you look at a country like Hungary, where uh, this is quite small country in comparison with Germany also. Yeah. And, and they had huge losses at this front, or the Romanians also. Yeah. So this is also an aspect that uh, is really, I don't know the today current status, maybe I, I can imagine there is some more written yet than 10 years before when I did this exhibition. But I think there are still some questions about this which are quite important. And that must be, I mean, partly because it, 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 in the Cold War, you you know, you're not going to talk about that, are you? Because they're Warsaw Pact countries, you're probably, probably best not discussing the time that the, the Red Army destroyed your army, <laughs> are you? It's best best leaving it alone and you don't want to talk about that either yeah I imagine that when you sided with the nazis you know and i uh, think every society has a tendency not to talk about defeats yeah <laughs> i would say yeah. i think this is one of the most reasons and uh, from this point of view stalingrad is an exhibition but this is uh, an exception but it has something to do with the whole defeat of the germans in world war ii and what what World War II was for the Germans with the Holocaust and, and the terrible war crimes and so on. So this is a special situation for the Germans at this point. Well, Jens, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us. I mean... Uh, uh, Got lots to think about there, isn't there? Oh, but there always is, Jim. There's just so much to think about. <laughs> yeah, um, me too. Uh, <laughs> no, thank you so much. And uh, as, as James says, um, uh, certainly when I get the chance to leave this plague island which we're trapped on <laughs> I, will, I will come to i will come to dresden and uh, visit the museum because um, uh, i very much look, look forward to being able to do that just um, write me a message if you want absolutely no problem and um and what Jens, we, please keep in touch because um yeah yeah, yeah we and do send, of course it's set and, and and send us the link for the um, article you mentioned earlier on because i'm sure our um mm. our diehard listeners would love to read that about yeah about it's stalingrad on, in the media yeah it's Fantastic. on an academic platform free to read i think in english Fabulous. it was published in russia but in english <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> well thanks for joining us anyway thanks everyone for listening we'll see you again soon cheerio bye cheerio